Welcome to Behavioral Science Uncovered, the podcast about behavioral science and how it is made. Welcome everyone. Today, Itzhak Gilboa, Professor of Economics at the HSU of Paris and Tel Aviv University is joining our episode. Itzhak, thank you very much for your time and your participation in the podcast. We are truly happy to have you here. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me and thanks for your interest. It's more than a pleasure. So let me give a little bit of background. When we contacted you for a podcast episode, you suggested the idea of contrasting a paper that did not find the success you anticipated with a paper that unexpectedly became your most influential work. We would like to start with a paper that you consider to be a big deal, but in your view, turned out not to be, case-based decision theory, published in 1995 in the Quarterly Journal of Economics. In this paper, you are concerned with decision problems under uncertainty in which the states of the world are neither easily constructed nor naturally given. In such situations, the expected utility paradigm seems hardly plausible. Could you describe the main statements of the paper? Uh, the paper is supposed to offer a different way, a different conceptual framework is, I think, the best term to, to use for dealing with decision under uncertainty. David and I have actually written about this concept. Also in the book, we try to refine some of the conceptual issues around it. So what we mean by a conceptual framework is not exactly a theory because it doesn't necessarily say anything too concrete, but it does say something if you know how to map the objects to real-life events. So we, we tend to think about game theory with Nash equilibrium as, as this kind of conceptual framework, expected utility, of course, which, why do we call it conceptual framework and not theory? The reason is that it uses various objects that can have more than one mapping to reality. So if we ask what would be a reputable implication of a theory, the answer is, well, it depends. And I think there's a lot of uh, freedom in this. This is sort of unrelated to the paper, but... Stop me if you want me not to go on on this, but I think that the field also changed, I think, to accept to be more of, deal with more with conceptual framework than concrete theories. If you think about, say, microeconomics of the, say, mid-century, 50s, 60s, general equilibrium, you still have this kind of freedom when think about the good in microeconomics. Then you can think about something like you know, tomatoes and cucumbers. And then you can think of also putting states of the world or putting time periods into it. And as we teach micro one, we typically do this kind of thing. So we actually use this freedom in terms of how do I map a formal entity in the model, which I call a good with a price, to something real. But this is a little bit more limited, the freedom that you have in general equilibrium than the freedom that you have with expected utility or a game theory where you could decide what are the states of the world, what's the time horizon, who are the players. So if you think about game theory, it's um, if I ask you to analyze an international conflict, you can think about the US and Russia as players, you can think about the president as a player, etc. So you have a lot of freedom in that. And this means that the framework is very powerful, very rich, but it also means that as a theory, it's almost never refutable. If I show you something that happened yesterday and I ask you, is this a refutation of natural equilibrium? The answer is no, of course not. You will be able to find a description of the game for which this is a natural equilibrium. So that's on sort of the somewhat negative side in terms of what does it really say? But uh, that's what we have, for better or worse. We have these conceptual frameworks, which by which I mean both expected utility and national equilibrium and similar things. And uh, the 
uh, project here was rather ambitious in the sense of trying to find an alternative conceptual framework to thinking about uncertainty, where instead of you know, thinking of someone, an agent who looks forward is trying to imagine various scenarios that can happen, rather looks backward at the kind of thing that has already happened and try to look for similarities. Of all the things that David and I have done together, and maybe even separately, this is probably the most behavioral, the thing that is further away from what I would define as rationality. The further on, we went on to think a lot in the case-based project about things that I would consider much more rational. But anyway, this was something that's supposed to be pretty new and a different way of thinking. We never thought that we were going to replace expected utility. We just wanted to show that there is an alternative way. And actually, in the book, we presented just like three different ways in which people reason, of which one, the Bayesian one, is very well known and entrenched in economics. Another one, the logical one, having to do with the rules and deductive logic is uh, very well analyzed in formal models, but not so much in economics. And the third one, which seems to be the simplest and the most basic, which is thinking by analogies, is basically ignored. We were very much influenced by works of uh, Roger Schenk, who coined the term case-based reasoning. Part of it had to do with the fact that my wife was a student in, at the institute that he was running. But it was extremely non-formal and also ideologically you know, they never really liked formal models. So the goal was to try to write down a formal model for this way of thinking that would be able to converse with the Bayesian one, which is very well understood, the logical one, which is understood well, though not in economics, and this one where we have almost no formal work on. I mean, I can go on and on, but yeah, but basically this was the idea. So in this sense, it was quite ambitious. Okay, this sounds impressive. Uh, it sounds like a lot of work, like a lot of thought and a lot of development. Could you tell me, how long did it take from the first seed of the idea to the final paper or the final conceptual write-up? The main part was very quick. Okay, so if you take, um, but you, I mean, brewing time, I would say it was almost a decade because um, you know, I met David in 83, 84, and uh, he was already working on uncertainty. And I was in my master's at something that was along these lines. Uh, I mean, closer to the beauty model of uh, multiple trials. So overall, we've been talking about uncertainty and how people think about uncertainty for uh, a while again meeting with uh, my wife who was a student at the time and she was you know, coming from psychology artificial intelligence saying this is not how people think etc so the feeling that there's something missing in the model the models that we typically use with states base etc has been there for a while then when they were at a conference uh, i think it was march of 92 something like that and it was in france and we this was the last evening and both david and i think felt that it was just too much of these models and playing little details and it started as a joke and then we just separated it was close to midnight or something and i took a plane the morning after and we said we need something else and david told me well maybe case based and we both laughed and then, you know, within days, there was a very first draft of the model. And then, you know, by the summer, we had a paper to present. But I mean, there's nothing, it wasn't like a difficult mathematical problem to solve or anything. Okay? It was just a way to go ahead and try to write it down formally and take the joke seriously and try to see, you know, how you can formalize it. And once you start, just write some formulas. It's, there's nothing... Um, too difficult to, to do there. Um, and of course, when you write it down, things pop up and the model converses with you. So in this sense, uh, I mean, there was 
few weeks and months that we saw that there's more this, more that, but basically within a couple of months, we had a paper that could be presented. Okay, this is very interesting. Because many papers, for example, in behavioral economics, evolve around a question that try to answer by collecting the data, analyzing it, and presenting the results. Your work sounds like the communication of a thoroughly developed theory in a single paper. No, we had another paper before that that was also about the fact that in games you always have some kind of a pass. So we thought about a pitted game with an infinite pass. And so we published some small paper, which was in some sense of it, that had some results in it, but overall it was zero impact. So sometimes you struggle, but once it's there, it's there. Okay? It's, uh, it wasn't really a matter of solving a difficult mathematical problem and certainly not doing any empirical work or anything else that requires hard work. So. In the end, the paper got published in the Quarterly Journal of Economics and is widely cited up to now. On the face of it, this is certainly a great outcome. Let me ask you, why did you decide to send it to the QGE and not to a journal that publishes far more axiomatic work, such as Econometrica? Well, we didn't try Econometrica because the axiomatization there is very, very simple. And we did it, I think, more or less in a self-professed way, just that we are playing the game. We do want to show that even if you think this way, and think about this conceptual framework in which you have similarities rather than probabilities or cases instead of states, it does not mean that you could explain everything and anything. This is the main thing that we wanted to fend off. So what we said, here's an example that you could play the same kind of game of finding axioms and showing what is refutable, et cetera. Uh, so that it is a refutable theory. So, um, and we did not pretend that there was something very amazingly new in the math. There was some things to take care of, but uh, nothing uh, too amazing. So it didn't seem like an economic thing. We did think about a general audience, and this was for me the first time in my life that I thought that uh, paper might be read by anyone beyond the referees. Because okay, so I, I grew up academically in an environment that was you know, very small and you know, feeling that you're a small group of researchers interested in the field. I mean, some, to some extent, even enjoying the status of thinking of how special we are that, you know, small misunderstood uh, group of people who do what uh, they're really interested in. Uh, but really, I grew up with no idea of no thought about anyone reading it or quoting it. Partly it had to do with doing my PhD at Tel Aviv, so I was not surrounded by many PhD students. I was not thinking in terms of academic impact, not even in terms of jobs. I was quite clueless. And I remember you know, in early conferences with joking with a friend about instead of writing in the paper, the reader might, you might just as well say, Peter Fishburne might. Late Peter Fishburne was, uh, you know, you're thinking about it. if there is a reader, then it must be just him. Who else would read your paper? Uh, <laughs> this was the first time that uh, I was at least thinking in terms of, well, maybe someone's going to read it. Maybe someone is really going to use it in more, more, slightly more applied work. So we were thinking about more of a general audience. I think we sent it to the AR and uh, it got rejected. Um, one of three maybe was reasonable, why another one was not showing, you know, much understanding of the paper, but okay. And then there was, some, there was another paper of ours, case-based consumer theory, which we didn't, we eventually published. And this was somehow, I was giving a talk at Harvard and I got an invitation to send the other paper to the QGE, it was solicited by them. And uh, it was at the same time, it was busy being rejected itself somewhere else. I think maybe also the air, I don't remember. I said, well, you know, this one is now 
maybe I even use the term busy being rejected somewhere, but would you like to have this one? And we said something like, okay, let's have this one. But it was not a lot of strategy. We did think about it as something that everyone who's doing a little bit of modeling could relate to and read. So in this sense, the, the audience was supposed to be general. That makes a lot of sense. When writing the paper, you considered it to be a big deal. Could you explain why? And do you still feel the same way today? Well, I do feel it's something that, I mean, it's something I, I look back and I'm happier for having done that. Okay, so it's um, an important milestone in my own work. I do understand why it has had relatively little impact on economic research. And uh, I think I understand this much better than at the time. So in this sense, I think <clears throat> I feel differently. I would not I would not have done anything very different about it. I would still, you know, I'm still pretty happy for having written it and thought about it and played with the formula and having published it. Maybe I would not even try top five. Other than that, I don't feel about it very differently. So I feel different. I think I understand better the sociology of the profession and why it was, it didn't have the kind of impact that we thought at the time it might have. Well, to be fair, it got a lot of citations. So my question is, What do you consider to be successful research? And in what sense did the paper fail to meet your definition of success? Also, do you have conjectures as to why? It depends on, on what really you expect to get. And generally, again, I said I would not have changed much because I enjoyed thinking about it, writing it. And I did mention it as an example of a paper that when writing it, I thought it might have maybe even should have had more of an impact because when you write it and say, well, you know, we're doing writing so much in a given way of thinking, paradigm or conceptual framework or how you want to call it, and maybe we should devote some attention to something else too. So even at the level of the should, it feels like, you know, maybe we should be less one-track or single-minded about modeling. But uh, I do understand that it's very difficult to change something like that and understand why it hasn't had a kind of impact. And would I do it any differently? I don't think so. Is it successful research? Well, in terms of uh, citations, not really, uh, not so much. In terms of uh, my own feeling about it, I feel okay about it. I don't think that I know that uh, I can do many different things. And it's always nice to be cited, but... Luckily for me, it's not my first goal because I'm not very good at getting cited. So at least not intentionally. So in this sense, it's okay. I mean, I don't, I don't want to say that I don't care about the people out there, etc. Everyone likes to be cited, etc., etc. But um, it's not my main goal. It's not that I'm sitting there and thinking, okay, how am I going to, to get you know, more citations or to be more famous? So in this sense, I don't think... For me, it's sort of... It's still successful in this sense because I feel okay about what we've accomplished there. I do understand why it's very difficult when you, exactly when you, for that reason that it is new, but it's very different and there's a huge cost involved in switching from one conceptual framework to another. And this also explained to us why some colleagues that said, what you're asking, it's like a more applied person to do, writing a model is to just start from scratch and, and forget about everything they know and everything they've done and everything the literature has done and try something completely new where, you know, even the most basic problems have not been analyzed yet. So there's a huge cost there. And um, most authors and readers will not be willing or not have the time to, to try to go through all this and, and see applications in this very new thing. So one thing that I figured out is that it's much easier to make changes that are relatively small, more evolutionary than revolutionary and, and get people to 
look at what you do. Well said. The paper that you cannot humbly downplay the influence of is Maxman Expected Utility with Non-Unique Priors, published 1989 in the Journal of Mathematical Economics. It is listed as the most cited and the most relevant paper in the Journal of Mathematical Economics. Also, it is in the top 1% of the most cited papers across all economic journals, according to ideas. The results in the paper can be interpreted as an extension to the Bayesian paradigm. Instead of having a unique prior probability over states, individuals entertain a whole set of priors and then decide according to the most pessimistic one. Compared to case-based decision theory, it is a mild deviation from the classical expected utility theory framework. Could you summarize the main results of the paper and how its assumptions differ from case-based decision theory? Also, why did you think this contribution would not be a big deal? So let's start with the paper itself. So it takes a standard approach like the Anscombaumann framework, which is also relatively easy to work with. You know, when I started working, David Schmeidler had the Shoke expected utility done in the Anscombaumann framework, and he viewed it as a relatively simple thing, and he suggested to me to work on this in the Savage framework, which was much more challenging mathematically. So here, which was sort of an exercise, we did it in the uh, Anscombaumann framework. There were later on a couple of attempts, one of them by David, a student of his, Shiri, uh, but uh, on um, trying to do it in a Savage framework or something, but or other. But basically, it was sort of an exercise. Both this and the Shukai expected duty of David were generalizations of an existing thing. So it's to begin with, it's much easier to try to, if you want people to use your model, to offer a model that generalizes what they used to do. So they say, okay, you know how to do it with expected utility. That's just a singleton. Now let's make a little bit of it and see if something happens. And that's also the way I think about these kind of things today, because there are many models of decision under ambiguity and people ask me about it. Uh, and I say, look, I mean, I'm not religious. There are many things, depends what you want to do. But when you analyze a problem, I would say start with the Bayesian one. That should be your benchmark. See what you get. If and when at some point you see that things cancel out, then you should put your ears and be a little bit suspicious because I don't believe that in reality things cancel out as nuclear as in the blackboard. So if you find out that the plus expectation and negative expectation somehow canceled out, that's the time to think maybe I should tweak the model a little bit. And then maybe it's not so important which model you use. So maximum could be one of them, could be others. But you can start with that model. Okay, so you could, if you think about someone who's applying the work, you can say, okay, here's do it first this way. Or maybe there is easy literature out there that's already using the Bayesian thing. And then you come along and say, well, maybe some of the results are not so robust. In particular, you can think about you know the, <clears throat> the work that um, Hansen and, and Sargent did as compared to Lucas when, when things cancel out to a large degree. If you recall some of your, mostly what I recall from my macro, uh, studies is that things cancel out all the time, just take expectations until everything cancels out. And then that's the time when you get a certain conclusion and say, wait a minute, maybe it's a little bit too neat, a little bit too simple, so maybe I should tweak the model. But you could start with that, okay? You have the Bayesian model in which things work in a certain way, and you have a simple way to make a deviation, which could be very minimal at the beginning, and you could compare the results, and then you can show that relatively minimal deviation gives you qualitatively different results, then this draws a lot more interest. It's much harder to do that with a model that's completely in a different language. Okay, if you say, okay, we don't have states of world, we have cases, we don't have probability, we have similarity, then 
the things are not on par, you don't know even how to start to compare them. And if you don't have the bulk of the literature that's in the language you're using, then there's no obvious comparison. So in this sense, it's um, working within a given language paradigm, or to be precise, it's not a language or a paradigm, it's conceptual framework is the most precise term we've come up with. Uh, when you work within a conceptual paradigm, framework, it's much easier to explain where the results are. It's also much easier for the audience to see which assumptions are responsible for which conclusions, where, you know, when you have two different theories, it's much harder to compare. It's also related to the fact that you cannot say whether case-based decision theory works better than expected utility or not, because they're not in the same language. And so if you take expected utility, which is stated in terms of, say, probabilities, you could show LA in states of states, you could show Ellsberg or something like that. But if you compare it to case base, it's a completely different language. So it's hard to imagine an experiment that would test the two because in so they're framed in very different languages. So anything that's framed in terms of states, I can think of many phrasings in terms of cases and vice versa, which means that it's hard to imagine a, a test that would put them, that would compare the two. That's exactly the same reason that it's much easier to take an existing model in applied work, semi-applied work, and tweak it a little bit to get something else. If you work with the same conceptual framework, when you try something else, you need to change everything. Yeah, I agree with that. It's much easier to understand novel ideas if someone is already familiar with the overall framework. Let's take a small detour to talk about the submission process. What were the reasons for submitting it to the Journal of Mathematical Economics? Why didn't you send it to a top five journal? Okay, so first, I think neither David nor me, certainly not me, were not thinking in terms of impact and things like this, really. It was, uh, I mean, there was a general sense that econometrica is better general mathematical economics, but wasn't, you know, the tyranny of the top five wasn't quite uh, strong at the time. And um, so David sent his uh, Shoke expected utility original paper to econometrica. It took many years and revisions. Eventually, it was published in 89. I did the uh, same kind of thing in Savage Framework, which was relative to that was mostly mathematical work. Conceptually, there wasn't much new there. So we thought, why not to JME? Okay, it was, it was 86 or something like that, maybe even 85, no, in 85, it was completed. The JME was relatively new, and then it was 74, when published correlated equilibrium there, so it wasn't necessarily a bad journal. But it seems much more of a mathematical contribution. When we had the max mean, I think we first tried analysis of statistics or something and got rejected. I think we then found out that it was somewhat similar to some work by uh, some statisticians in the referee report. So, you know, we incorporate these references and see how it relates. And because they didn't have the exponentization, I think, uh, I don't remember the details. And I uh, thought, well, you know, I had one paper in Jamie, one not another one. So we tried that one. So we were willing to accept that. So... <laughs> and sort of opening a little bit opening up to decision theory because it wasn't there last time too. but uh, there wasn't a lot of thinking behind this if you compare the two it seems that maybe it doesn't matter so much because if um, I mean if you see that something you know that published in JME and was not a top five even then I eventually got to be cited because it was a useful idea for people to work with and another thing that was the QJE but was not so easy to use didn't get cited so at some point you know history can 
can find whatever is useful. So in this sense, maybe if you don't have to, you don't have to worry about it too much. I mean, sometimes you have to, okay? If you tell you, they tell you, look, I mean, in order to get the tenure or something, you have to give this list of publications, then you have no choice. But uh, if it's not so much, then... So I think it's, it's very difficult to tell what is going to be more popular. I mean, in hindsight today, I can tell you the difference in that just because, you know, a lot of talking a lot with friends and about, uh, in general, the sociology and philosophy of the profession, which is a nice thing to have over beer. And uh, since then, with Andy Postlewaite, Larry Samuelson and David, we've published a couple of papers on the sociology of the field. And uh, we think, yeah, it's, it's a fun thing to, to think about. So today I could tell you in hindsight why one paper was more popular than we had thought and why the other one less. But at the time, I'm not sure that uh, people are so good at that, uh, which means that also the referees, when they decide whether it is top five or not, might miss what's really going to be important. It's not so important. Overall, I think that today it's even less so than at the time because today the communication is so much better. So there were days where you really needed the journal to publish things and get to libraries and get to readers. Today with the internet, this is sort of ridiculous. So to the point that comes a question of what's the role of journals? uh, (laughs) It's really just supposed to be some kind of quality assurance, but uh, there were days where you really had publishers who invested time and money in the typesetting and reading and so on and sending things to papers, to libraries. And if the paper didn't get to the library and there was not proper typesetting, then readers would have a hard time reading it. So to summarize, in the past, journals were the means to publish and get your work into the scientific ecosystem. Now, circulating papers is much easier and journals transition to a key player in quality assurance, right? I remember in the 90s, people were talking about it, also computer scientists, about what will happen with journals, do we need them? And part of the, I think, the resentment of what's going on with publishers is about that, because at the time, they really invested money in getting a paper to be published, and you know, from typesetting to all the rest, and, and then distributing, etc. Since then, they're not doing much of it, they're getting the tech files, and you know, we're doing all the refereeing and all the editing for them, and we are giving them perfect files to duplicate, and then they're sent online, so what's the role of the publisher, right? So uh, there was a concern that maybe there are going to be too many papers, etc., and too many journals, I mean, and how could you tell? And, you know, some people speculated that maybe you just have, okay, here's uh, Raphael's list and Raphael is well known. And therefore we know that, you know, whatever he read this month, you know, just like a, a movie critic or something would be the thing that people would follow. And maybe that's part of the reason why we have a top five is such a, because people are saying this is a top five paper, this is not a top five paper. It's really just about is the paper so important, right? Because you realize that uh, anyone can get an read anything. The question is, do I give it this medal of honor or something? Thank you so much for sharing your experience with journals and publishing in general. Returning to your papers, both of them were co-authored with David Schmeiber. Together, you have been publishing for 30 years now, approximately one paper every year. I would love to hear more about this cooperation that advanced the field. You started as a graduate student and became a colleague. How did your collaboration evolve over time? Do you still feel like a student sometimes? Well, I guess to some extent you always do. Uh, and there's, of course, uh, like a parent-child relationship uh, in this. And that's sort of, uh, I guess, normal and uh, also very positive when it works well. I think we're sufficiently different in the style to make a good team in this sense because I'm 
much more enthusiastic about the things that uh, come up and David is much less and much more critical. So it's sort of a good balance. I think that if I were to work and I've had colleagues who are much more like me in terms of the emotional reactions and the excitement and let's write it down, et cetera, et cetera. And then you get stuff out that maybe should not have been written. And uh, if um, David's case, I think it's the opposite. If you put him with another David, then there'll be some great ideas that will never get written because it's too critical. So I think we sort of balance each other in this sense. And I don't think things have changed much. And so. Okay, who has the last word? I think you know you have to you have to have some agreement okay so I know very few cases you know diverging opinions on the interpretation let's first convince each other before we hope to convince anyone else <laughs> so yes what we end up writing are the kind of things that are sort of in agreement and sometimes so one would think that um, make too strong a statement and then let's tone it down so that uh, in this sense you could, you could say that everyone has veto power more than last word I guess thank you very much for the personal insight. And obviously, you have also worked with other courses. In your view, what are good courses and what are bad courses? I think good courses are courses that you can trust and you could run silly ideas by and uh, feel that this is sort of a collaborative atmosphere. I don't really think I've had bad courses in this sense, in the sense that... If you, you don't feel sufficiently comfortable to come up with ideas, and even if they are half-baked or less than that, that's, I would say, not very conducive. Uh, one thing that happens in our field is that uh, you don't lose much or anything by publishing with more people. It's uh, not the same in other fields where, you know, you argue about how many authors there are, who's first and who's last and things like that. By the way, it's an equilibrium I don't quite understand. Uh, it has to do... I mean, I think it has to do with, with vanity because uh, when you think about PhD students who are studying together in the same office or something and what prevents them from signing each other's papers as sort of insurance or way to, you know, to trade, I mean, you lose almost nothing in terms of uh, if you get a top five publications, top five publication. What you lose if it's a double co-authored paper versus a single is very small. And you could have many of those, at least twice as many, right? And this doesn't happen. And I think that what, you know, the field probably trusts the fact that uh, people are too um, a bit vain. That's the only explanation I can give. But in other fields, it's not like this. In other fields, it's, they do count who's first, who's second, etc. And this makes things, I think, much less cooperative and uh, it's much nicer to collaborate where you don't have to worry about oh if I don't do enough then I would be dropped out or if I not be the first author and I have an idea but I'll wait and I won't say it because it's half-baked so I'll wait until I present to my co-authors. This I think is a less pleasant atmosphere and probably also less useful less productive in the long run. Going forward with this in a recent contribution uncertainty and decision making under a crisis How to make policy decisions in the COVID-19 context, you showcase that modern decision theory can enhance policymaking to a responsible and transparent process in the highly uncertain, complex, and rapidly changing environment of the pandemic. In a recent paper, Charles Mensky states that statistical decision theory is conceptually simple, but application is often challenging. In your view, where do advances in computation allow for new applications? For instance, could the combination of decision theory and machine learning methods help us improve our analysis of decision-making under uncertainty? To some extent. So let me back up and say, I mean, the point about this paper was it's almost like a political petition because there's nothing, it's not about research and... 
you know, the idea that you have so many co-authors is almost like saying, we believe in this, and we think it's important. And that's one thing that's really important to me in the sense of uh, what we have to sell to the world in terms of decision theory. Now, I'm not thinking necessarily about applications to economics. What we have talked about earlier was know, the impact in economics and whether an economist would find this model useful to be used in theoretical and empirical work. But now in thinking about the audience of real decision makers, I think there is a tendency not to use theory, and it's quite well understood. But there's a way to think about it in, you know, the tendency to look to think about it in one of two ways. Either the problem is very simple, well-defined, and then I can program it and solve it once and for all. So if you think about an application like Google Maps or Waze, if you talk to decision makers and say, here, I have a new idea for you. I'll teach you Dijkstra's algorithm to find the shortest path in the graph. They'll say, who needs that? Okay, so just get one programmer to do it once and for all, and we could use our work forever and on our phone, and that's it, right? And that's practically what we do with Waze. So they don't need to know decision theory because you just need someone to do it the right way once and for all. Then there are all kinds of problems that we don't, don't fit the model so easily. And suppose, you know, class of students, and they say, if you ask me how to invest your money, the first thing they'll say, look, if you have money to invest, you probably know something I don't. So, I mean, who am I to tell you how to invest your money? But going all the way and saying, okay, let's forget about it and just use my intuition is also not right. This is what many of them would feel. And the conclusion would be either it's a well understood problem that I can put on an application on my phone, or it's something that only intuition helps and therefore decision theory is not useful. The conclusion in both cases that I don't need decision theory, which is quite convenient if you don't want to study that. I obviously have a vested interest in saying that's not the case and that decision theory is useful after all. But having admitted this conflict of interest, I do seriously believe that many problems are in between in which decision theory cannot give you the right answer, but it can be sort of a consistency test or testing the hypothesis you have or things. So for instance, now you, you want to buy a certain stock, you want to start a certain business. And I'm sitting there and I cannot tell you whether it's right or wrong. But I can say, before you actually make a decision, let's sit down and post hoc, try to support the decision you're going to make with a model. So I will sit down with you. I'm supposedly the theorist, and I'll try to come up with the simplest, more convincing, most convincing model with state of the world and outcomes and utilities and this and that. And, and let's see what kind of beliefs are needed in order to support your decision. What kind of utility is needed for that? Sometimes it, you can find out that what matters to your utility is not what you thought you mattered. Okay, maybe you pretended you do it for you know, the glory of science, but actually you do it for the glory of yourself or something like that. So it's a little bit like going all the way to the therapy session. So in, in one, again, popular non-research paper with um, we, we call it between software and the shrink, because you can think of decision theory at one extreme as in Google Maps. It's just a piece of software gives you the answer and that's it. No need to, no point in arguing. On the other hand, it's like a therapist who helps you understand yourself. Okay, what really matters to you? What are your beliefs? And then you look at it and you may like it or not. And you can say, well, maybe I'm a bit too paranoid. Maybe uh, my beliefs are hard to be supported and things like that. And, and given the fact that the therapist also knows about psychological biases, they can help you in maybe making the decision that's better for you. So I tend to think of decision theory as somewhere along the gamut. I mean, the application of decision theory is sort of a dialogue between the decision maker and decision theorist. One extreme is that the decision maker says, here's my problem, gets the answer, no argument. The other extreme is just saying, here's what I'm going to do, let's try to understand what I'm doing better. 
in between those room for dialogue. So that's part of what we say there. But the other part, and that's somewhere where probably Chuck Munsky and I would disagree, and this is that to me, it's very important that the language of the dialogue is also subject to that. So in the sense that, suppose we're thinking about lockdowns and no lockdowns for COVID, and I ask you, what's the probability of so many severe cases in 20 days from now? And you might look at me as a decision maker and say, I don't know, I can't put the probabilities on this or something like that. So it's very nice that you have these models, but, you know, they're not useful. So let me just make decisions the way I'm used to. And then I'd like to say, you know what? Okay, wait on. I understand this is a bit too strict for you, but we have other models. We have models without probability. Or you can't even write down the state space. Well, wait, we have models that don't even use state space. Or we have models with multiple multi-criteria decision making things like that. So it's important in this kind of dialogue that we decision theorists have a wide range of models so that we could offer alternatives that the decision maker would feel comfortable with. And that's part of what we try to say in this paper on COVID specifically, that it's probably very difficult to come up with probabilities and to expect decision makers to put exact probabilities on the of pandemics or things like that. And it's important for us to be able to offer a variety of models. And in this sense, this is quite orthogonal to what we discussed earlier about decision theory, because the application of decision theory within economics tends to be conservative, and partly for a reason. And part of the reason, I mean partly for a reason, I mean not conservative just because people are lazy, but conservative because there is what I, I call sometimes the Grice principle of the scientific Grice principle. So let me just say in two words, Paul Grice had this uh, principle in philosophy of language that says that the natural utterance often says more than what it says because we have sort of understanding that you say the simplest thing that conveys the message, okay? So if you ask me if I'm going to be at the office uh, today and I say I'll be at the office afternoon, you sort of imagine I would not be before because you assume that we are coordinating and I'm saying the simplest utterance that is correct, which might not be true. Maybe um, I just don't want to see you and therefore I'm saying uh, uh, as of noon. But typically this is what we do in language. Okay? So you understand something that could not be, that was not actually said because you go through the act, the reasoning of how, what else I could have said. Of course, it drops out of Bayesian reasoning, but you don't have to be Bayesian for this. You just say, he said this, he could have said that. I think something like this happens in science too. So if you're doing a somewhat more applied work, whether it's theoretical or empirical, and you use a statistical tool or a decision theoretic model or a game theoretic solution concept, these are tools for you. And the understanding is that you use the most standard thing that conveys the point. So if you work in labor and development and all of a sudden you say, and here I use a statistical tool that no one else ever used. People would look at you and say, why did you do that? Probably didn't work for you with the other thing, right? So if you do something very fancy there, then there is a reasonable suspicion that what you present is not very robust. So within the applications in economics, if you think about decision theory, someone who comes up with a new model no one heard of would be criticized to some extent uh, justifiably. But if you think about applications of decision theory to real decision makers, then a variety of models I think is good because the way I think about uh, rational decision is something that the decision maker is happy with, happy with the analysis of that decision. And it's absolutely fine and actually necessary that they be happy with the model too. So having many models that would allow people feel comfortable and analyzing and making their final decisions, I think is, is a plus. Directly connected, there is certainly the question of model uncertainty. What is the right model or is there even a right model? 
So this is the distinction that I think Lars Hansen was promoting mostly, and we've actually had a bit of an exchanges, not an exchange, exchanges over the years about where you do draw the line. So for us, it was just, you know, you have a probability or you have a set of probabilities. But for him, I guess, coming from the background of econometrics, there was this distinction between misspecification of the model or of the parameter. So we wrote it with these three layers, trying to find the qualitative distinctions. But basically, yes, there are several layers of uncertainty, and I think Hansen is the, maybe the one who most, most, most prominent in advancing the fact it's not only two, but, but three, that you know, it's not a problem in model. But some would be related to things that you're not aware of, or things that are not even in your language. I would love to talk much longer about this, but unfortunately, we are running out of time. So to conclude this episode, I would like to ask you a few questions about your work environment and the way you conduct research in general. You are publishing approximately one to two papers yearly, and you wrote more than five books about decision theory. Along with your academic commitments, you are also chair of decision science at AXA. How do you find the time to manage all this? How do you structure your working day to have even time for this podcast? It's just a matter of personality in the sense that I tend to do the things I dislike the most first. So um, I start with the home chores and buying things and then uh, dealing with paperwork and so on. So often I get to write only very late. But uh, no, writing research is, is the fun thing. That's, um, but I don't know if it's so so special. I mean, I think that people are more prolific than I am. It's, um, you basically, you know, when you get to write, often it's the kind of thing that you've been thinking about anyway quite a bit it started a random comment over a beer with a friend or a colleague and then you think about it here and there and by the time it, it gets to something worth putting down a paper even if it's not the entire paper but something that's worth writing down a model then it's relatively well understood i think okay that partly resolves the puzzle we arrived at our last question What single piece of advice would you give to early career researchers trying to write a publishable paper? I think it's important to ask yourself what the goal is. For instance, we mentioned the top five things, and in the two departments I belong to, we dropped this kind of a requirement. A friend years back when I was chairing the department at Aviv, a friend, I told my friend, a colleague, that we demand top five publications or one or two. And he asked me, let's say that Uh, all us old tenured guys don't send any paper to top five. How many people can meet this standard a year? So they just take the top five papers, how many they publish, multiply the number of co-authors and find this. And the, the effect is that many departments like ours drop this uh, requirement. So if you have to, and you know that your department will never tenure you without the top five, okay, so you have to be more ambitious. But other than that, I would think try to do things that are combination of would make you feel good about yourself and be long lasting and in this try to find some balance between not to do something will be like 15th generation variation on something well known and not to ask the field to change everything and begin from scratch so try to balance these things and find something that is still interesting enough for you to work with and interesting enough to other people to read okay, great personally i will follow this advice it's like 
It was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you very much for your time joining the BS Uncovered podcast, despite your tight schedule. It was great to hear about the contrast expectation versus actual success of your two papers. I'm sure that our listeners enjoyed learning about research in the field of axiomatic decision theory and your work in improving the expected utility theory framework. Thank you so much. Thank you.